I still stand by the concept that, you know, maybe it needs perfecting, maybe it needs more research, but the goal of preserving movement so that you can avoid additional disc damage is a really worthy one. Hello and welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and a founder of myelopathy.org. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and also a founder of myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters. In this episode, we are taking a deep dive into one of the continuing, let's say, controversies in cervical spine surgery myelopathy, that is cervical disc replacements. It remains a topic full of discussion and debate, both by professionals, but also patients, as we will hear. And wherever there is debate, there are uncertainties. And herein lies our goals, Ewan, to help surgeons and patients make better informed decisions to ultimately get the best outcomes for their myelopathy. So let's remember, there are many surgical options for taking the pressure off the spinal cord to relieve symptoms. When the pressure is from problems in front of the spinal cord, like a slip disc, there are two main options, an ACDF or a disc replacement. So today we ask, can the ACDF, i.e. an anterior cervical discectomy infusion, the traditional gold standard procedure, provide adequate results? This technique removes the disc, decompressing the spinal cord, then joins the vertebra above and below together by fusing that joint. Or can a newer technique, which aims to preserve motion in the cervical vertebra, provide better outcomes? This newer technique uses a prosthetic or artificial disc to replace the patient's damaged disc. This is sometimes called arthroplasty, which means reconstruction or replacement of a joint. It's important to recognize that surgery for DCM differs greatly from case to case. Not all techniques are offered at all hospitals. Sometimes patients need to lead the discussion by having the confidence to ask the surgeon for a particular option. And also cost is an important factor, particularly in some healthcare systems. So if I understand correctly, Ben, both techniques, ACDF and artificial disc replacement, relieve compression of the spinal cord, thereby relieving symptoms of myelopathy but the jury is still out on which technique gives better long-term outcomes. Yes, that's right. Now, the lure of motion preservation of the neck obviously appeals, but are these artificial disc replacement surgeries really better in terms of patient outcomes and also in terms of cost effectiveness, particularly in countries where patients pay the bill? With ACDF, the vertebra above and below the problematic disc are fused together, as I've said. A cage is generally inserted to both encourage this, but also preserve the height of your cervical spine, and sometimes also correct the alignment of your spine. But this process will reduce the flexibility in the neck and alter your spine's natural motion. Now, some believe this is important, that unhealthy motion is what has contributed to the wear and tear that led to spinal cord compression in the first place. But others argue that, well, that may well be, but the act of fusing the vertebra together actually also negatively affects your spine and can lead to problems at other levels in the spine, what's known as adjacent segment disease. This results in patients perhaps having to undergo second or even third spinal surgeries, which of course has a huge impact on their lives, and indeed also huge cost implications. Yeah, so it must be an enormous weight of responsibility for 
you, the surgeons, to make these decisions. Speaking as a person who's been through surgery and had a multi-level fusion nearly eight years ago, it's helpful to understand the surgeon's decision-making process. Every case is different, so how do you navigate that? Well, with difficulty, to be honest, there's no clear single roadmap. And it's very common to get different recommendations from different surgeons. Were you offered a disc replacement, Ewan? I had three levels done from C4 to C7 in 2015. So I wasn't a good candidate for disc replacements. The majority of people who have had disc replacements in the support group have compression and max on two levels, but most of them had the one level done. I haven't really spoken to anybody who has had more than two levels done in the support group. That's interesting to hear you, and I think that's a theme that we're going to hear in our interviews today. And I guess it also picks up another point about why we're doing this podcast, because this is a topic, you know, what surgery should I have that's commonly discussed in the support group? Yeah, it can be really traumatic facing the big decision. People often have very little medical understanding of what's happening to them. So the more information they have, the better. And I guess that gets the heart of our goals at myeloppy.org and the projects it's informed, you know, trying to both ensure researchers are creating, but also the community is acting on information that can give them the best outcomes. So let's get back to the topic of this podcast to help us explore this question. I first called on the voice of experience, Dr. Michael Failings, pioneering neurosurgeon at Toronto Western Hospital, Canada, who's a long-term scientific advisor to myeloppy.org and has seen many technologies wax and wane over the years. I started by asking him to summarise the pros and cons of this newer option, cervical disc replacement. The two potential advantages for a cervical disc replacement are, uh, one, to retain uh, motion at the uh, segment that's operated upon, uh, as opposed to a cervical fusion. And the other potential advantage is to try to minimize the development of a degeneration of the adjacent uh, spinal segment by retaining uh, a, a motion uh, with the cervical disc replacement. So those are the uh, theoretical potential um, advantages um, of a cervical disc replacement uh, over the uh, accepted gold standard, which is an anterior cervical a discectomy infusion. And what do you think are some of the potential disadvantages of a disc replacement that need to be weighed up against that? Well, there are a number of uh, potential disadvantages in the context of the treatment of degenerative cervical myelopathy. The indications for an artificial cervical disc are actually quite narrow. And the disc replacement surgery does not work well if there is um, advanced degeneration of the disc or cervical spondylosis. I just wanted to touch on again your, your personal experience spanning this, this evidence base because I presume at the origin and the outset when disc replacement sort of came online there potentially could have been a lot of excitement around them like there are with many other joint replacement technology that's come in and been, been very successful. Now, was it in time, if you cast your mind back to that point where actually we thought this could well be you know, a real significant solution for cervical spine surgery. I was also uh, initially a very enthusiastic early adopter and in fact was involved with the design of, um, of an artificial uh, cervical disc. And this was in the early days of the development of this uh, technology. 
for me, the, the issue was never really so much around the loss of range of motion of the segment because each cervical segment uh, below the C2 level only contributes about 10 to 15% of the motion. So, so patients with a one-level uh, fusion, uh, from a practical perspective, don't lose that much range of motion. Uh, but we do see adjacent segment degeneration occurring in about 10% of uh, patients who undergo an, ar- an anterior cervical discectomy infusion. Now, an artificial cervical disc is a valid procedure that is, when done correctly for the correct indications, has a, a valid uh, indication. But there appears to be less of a clear-cut uh, advantage of an artificial cervical disc over an ACDF uh, procedure in patients with straightforward uh, mild cervical spondylosis. But I would again hasten to emphasize that I would be very hesitant to recommend this procedure in a patient with uh, advanced degeneration of the disc presenting with degenerative cervical myelopathy. There's been an enthusiasm by uh, the implant companies to address a potential market opportunity. So initially, there were very few cervical disc replacement options available, and I think a lot of the companies were on the sidelines watching to see how this evolved. Uh, The option has become quite popular with patients because of the concept of having a non-fusion option. So what's now happened is that because of this emerging market that uh, many companies have tried to enter the market and because of uh, patent protection issues, you end up with multiple devices that all appear different. One of the other things for people to be aware of with the cervical disc replacement and is something to discuss with the surgeon is what a type of material uh, the artificial disc is made out of because many if not most of the artificial cervical discs are made out of stainless steel or cobalt chromium uh, as opposed to titanium and this has important consequences for getting a, an MRI of the cervical spine and uh, many of these implants are associated with a significant artifact on the imaging which can render the uh, assessment of the affected site or even the sites uh, adjacent to the artificial cervical disc challenging often requiring the use of of a ct myelogram to evaluate uh, residual or recurrent uh, neurological symptoms. There are a lot of claims that are made from the companies around uh, potential advantages of one technology over another. And the engineering behind these implants is very clever. And some of these uh, designs are very thoughtful. But again, one can't mistake you know something that is theoretically attractive for actually having the evidence base to support its use where do we stand with the sort of cost effectiveness evaluation of these these technology even in that narrow indication that you've identified there the 
comparative effectiveness of arthroplasty versus fusion from an economic perspective is a challenging one because the arthroplasty is about four times more expensive than the anterior cervical discectomy and fusion. So I think the bottom line right now is the verdict is out on the cost effectiveness long term of artificial cervical disc, but certainly the upfront costs are substantially higher. How do you think practice is expanding globally? Do you think there is an increasing uptake in these sort of technology now, or how are people looking at this? There are very interesting geographic variations that one sees. So there are certain regions of the world in East Asia, for example, South Korea, that are very early adapters and enthusiasts of, of newer technologies. Then one sees some countries such as the United Kingdom that tend to be a bit more conservative in the adoption of newer technologies. And part of it is driven by whether one is working in a, in a publicly funded system uh, versus a, a, a private uh, sector. I think probably the closing comment would be that as a concept, there are two elements that contribute to the pathophysiology of degenerative cervical myelopathy. And one is the static compression, and that can be uh, addressed through either an anterior cervical disectomy infusion or an arthroplasty. But the second component is the abnormal motion related to the degeneration of that segment. And if there is significant degeneration of the segment, the best option in general is an anterior cervical discectomy infusion. But again, I think these options are best discussed with an expert health professional who could uh, guide the individual on their particular case. It's always helpful to talk to Dr. Failings. The message I'm hearing is that there is a role for disc replacement, but only in very select cases. There needs to be a simple disc herniation with no degeneration of the bony elements of the spine around it, i.e. spondylosis. That's when disc replacement surgery gives the best outcome. Now, we're very lucky to have world-leading experts in spine medicine among our members. Myelopi.org's combination of professional experience and lived experience is unique, and I believe so powerful. We're the only organization bringing together the experts who treat DCM alongside the people who actually live with the disease, encounter these different surgeries and experience the outcomes. Yeah. So again, it's a big shout out to all the health professionals, anyone who cares for people with DCM, to please collaborate and join in our conversation. That's right. And as medical professionals, we want to share the burden of decision making. But as Michael says, the evidence base is so important for weighing up pros and cons. And without clear cut and openly accessible evidence, it's very hard for even the best informed patients to know which way to turn. And we hear this next from Megan Baxter, uh, a lady, 32, had a cervical disc replacement. And she and her husband and supporters were faced with these difficult decisions. You know, do I need fixation? Can I preserve motion? And how do I avoid adjacent disc degeneration? So let's hear from Megan as I asked her to describe her symptom progression and how she became aware of disc replacement as an option. I had incredible pain in my neck and down my arm. 
Uh, it was challenging to diagnose because I hadn't had a fall. I hadn't had a car accident. There was no precipitating event. It just started one day and we sought the conservative treatments, you know, chiropractic and physical therapy, uh, some pain medication, and it just wasn't getting better. You know, in fact, it was getting worse. I couldn't, I couldn't lift a mug. I couldn't turn a doorknob. My, my left arm was just really quite useless and, and the inability to lay down was so difficult. It was incredibly painful to lay down and try to sleep. And so eventually I went to the emergency room and they did a CT scan and diagnosed a herniated disc. From there, I went to neurology and they did an EMG to, to look at nerve conduction. And um, from there, they referred me to neurosurgery. How did you become aware of a cervical disc replacement as an option for you? It wasn't something that was offered to me by the medical team. We saw um, a couple of different surgeons who both recommended some kind of surgical intervention. Uh, I have a cousin who was also in her mid thirties at the time who had a disc, same disc as mine, actually C5, C6 uh, go bad and needed a surgery. And she had a disc replacement the year before I did. So I spoke to her about it and I did a lot of research and it was something that we specifically asked our surgeon about. You were trying to work quite hard to sort of find out what was the best, the best option for you. Yes, yes. I, but still under a little bit of a time crunch. So I would say from from diagnosis of the herniation to surgery was about four weeks, five weeks. Going back to your cousin then, was this something that she was offered immediately then, the disc replacement, or similarly she had to go out and find, find out uh, an option for her? I think she was offered it. And then when she learned that I was injured, she reached out to tell me about her experience. Her, her experience was quite good. She, she had the disc replacement and went on to have a, quite a good recovery and, and no lingering symptoms. And just um, this sort of period, you mentioned the sort of time crunch, four weeks, you know, bringing yourself up to speed with a condition presumably you hadn't really heard, heard much about and then having to juggle quite complicated information about decisions. How, how did you find all of that? Oh, uh, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> the surgeons didn't have a lot of discussion. There wasn't a lot of personal discussion or a lot of time. I had a lot of testing done in that time and EMG, the CT scans. I was in a lot of pain, uh, but I did have a lot of time in the middle of the night to do some reading. Um, and I, you know, was, we, we felt like since I was young and there weren't other complications, it was something that we wanted to investigate. The idea of preserving natural movement um, and knowing that we, we had that option to try. I was in good health. I'm, I'm 32 at the time. And I wanted to be able to preserve that motion. The idea of, of avoiding the cascade of surgeries. You know, I talked to people who had had a fusion and then a few years later, you know, the disc above it starts to act up and they need another fusion. And then a decade later, you, you fuse the level below. And I had thought at the time that I could avoid kind of that cascade of surgeries by preserving the natural movement through disc replacement. It's relatively new in the U.S. I was reading just the other day, a, you know, disc replacement for the spine was approved in 2004 by the FDA. So in 2018, when I had my first surgery, it had been like, a few years that had been being done here in the States. 
And so when you went back to your surgeon with that, that were they receptive to this? Yes, they were completely on board, enthusiastic even about the chance to, to do it. Um, because I had no other complications. It was a single level with no other bulging discs, no other issues. They were completely on board and, uh, you know, spoke with my insurance and scheduled it within two weeks. And so you underwent the the disc replacement and and, and what happened? In the immediate result, it, it was fantastic. Like I woke up and I had function of my left arm. I was able to squeeze my husband's hand. I could walk steadily again. Uh, I had a really fantastic recovery. We did 12 weeks of post-op physical therapy to kind of gain back function, gain back grip strength on my left side. And really felt we felt like it was a, a great success for about the first, I'd say, six months. And then what changed? I started to have recurring symptoms both on the left side and the disc itself was, was grinding. There was always this kind of noise. You picture when you grind your teeth, it was that sort of sound that I could hear. No one else could hear it, but I could hear within the disc. And we went back and they said, well, you know, sometimes that's, that's normal. If there's fluid pockets in there, things, things happen. And it, it didn't raise any alarm bells for anybody. Uh, they took some scans. Radiology said everything looked good. I went back again at nine months post-op uh, with the same concerns and some mild new symptoms. And there again, they, they looked at the scans. They talked to me a little bit and said, you yeah, know, let's just, let's, we're not going to do anything. We're not concerned about this. So I didn't go back to that spine center for my 12 month because at that point I, I felt like I wasn't being hurt. I went back to their neurologist at 18 months post-op because by that time I had bilateral symptoms, which was new. Previously, it had all been on my left, but then I developed bilateral symptoms, both arms, just burning pain all the time. And they misdiagnosed me with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, which I've seen come up a lot in the support group. I think and fair enough, it, it's a far more common thing than cervical myelopathy in a 34-year-old. And they just, they reached a conclusion that was incorrect. So after that, we sought a second opinion. Fortunately, we live near, you know, we have a big metropolitan center and we have that option to, to go seek a second opinion. And that neurologist read the EMG and said, no, you've got cervical myelopathy we need to get you to a neurosurgeon. They did a CT myelogram. They looked at things and they said, we really think that the, the disc is malpositioned and it's causing abnormal motion. It's causing cervical instability in your spine and has been for a couple of years now. And we need to, we need to stabilize it. I was told that there was a 30% chance that they couldn't get the disc removed because of bone growth. Fortunately, they were able to remove it. So just to clarify, they thought in your instance that the, the extra motion or the persisting motion, at least, was something that was contributing to your, your pattern of myelopathy, or certainly at that stage anyway. Yes, yes. They felt that, that it was causing severe cord irritation. So ordinarily, people are assessed for cervical myelopathy with an MRI scan. But in your instance, you had to have a CT myelogram. Why, why was that? When you have an MRI, and they did one initially, the device in there, in, in your spine, it causes a lot of disturbance in the MRI images. You can't actually see what's going on because the, the 
the disc itself kind of creates this black space in the MRI image. So the best way to assess it is to do a CT myelogram. Right. How are you doing now? And having been through all of this, Megan, how's, how, how's the recovery been? We just passed the two-year anniversary of my second operation. I'm still in physical therapy weekly for pain management. I've got some prescriptions that I take when necessary. I, I have permanent nerve damage. I've got some like sensory dead zones across my back. I would say I'm doing far better than I was prior to the removal of the disc. By the time they removed the disc, I was walking with a cane due to loss of proprioception. And I was wearing a a hard neck brace all the time because of the cervical instability. So when I reflect on, on what it was like two years ago, life is much easier than it was, but um, we're still affected daily by my limitations and my pain. I'm not sure why it didn't work in my case, but I, I still stand by the concept that, you know, maybe it needs perfecting, maybe it needs more research, but, but the, the goal of preserving movement so that you can avoid additional disc damage uh, is a really worthy one. Mm-hmm. And, and we referenced earlier your, your cousin, because it sounds like she's had a much more uh, consistently positive experience from, from her, her equivalent operation. Yes. Yeah. Hers has been really good. She's very active. She's out paddle boarding, hiking. Uh, she just hiked Machu Picchu recently. She's a, just an active person who hasn't had any trouble with it. Unfortunately, that was not my, that was not my result. It's very powerful to hear, Megan. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. So having been through all of this now, Megan, and sitting where you are, how would you talk to somebody who's in, in, you know, in your shoes from sort of all those years ago, who's you know, facing their first need for surgery in, in, in DCM, what would you, what would you talk to them about, about your experiences and, and, and what you've learned? I would say to, to trust your instincts and keep asking questions. I, I think often it feels like time isn't on our side and we need to hurry in order to, you know, hurry, hurry into surgery, hurry. I, I feel that I felt that, that pressure of time, like, Oh, I, what if I, what if I have permanent damage because this isn't happening fast enough? Um, but it's important to slow down a little bit and, and ask questions, make sure that your professionals are taking the time to discuss things with you. Uh, I don't regret my first surgery, but having experienced an entirely different neurosurgery center the second time, I realized the first time that, that I was not well supported. I wasn't well informed as a patient uh, and, and that experience could be better. So have you um, received any help in, in supporting your recovery since, since your last surgery, Megan? Yes, I am in physical therapy weekly as a help for pain management and to help prevent uh, further issues. And the physical therapists have been fantastic. I have been seeing a couple of them for, for two years now. And they help me assess how I'm doing from a more objective standpoint when I'm getting down about the pain. You know, they're able to, to tell me, hey, you know, remember what you couldn't do six months ago. Uh, and they're very creative. You know, they don't have that ability to, to give you a prescription or to recommend a surgery or any testing. What they bring to the table is, here's how to go about your daily life. Here's our suggestions. You know, how can we help you cope with the things that you need to do every day, your laundry, motherhood, uh, in my case, homeschooling. 
it wasn't recommended to me, even even by the neurosurgeons. Uh, there again, I drew on other people's personal experiences. People I know who said physical therapy has been a lifeline as they recovered and continued to deal with these issues. And they were absolutely right. It helps with the pain management. It helps with life management so regularly. It's interesting to hear because I think the access to that sort of extended rehab or any rehab actually is is very limited in certain parts of the world. Even in the UK, we, we have very limited access to post-operative rehab. And it's very interesting to hear you speak of those those benefits. I think it's, it's a really untapped opportunity. We've learned a lot about advocacy and navigating the medical system. I love the support group. I don't think I was under any illusions that that I would heal to 100%, but I, I lost a few things, particularly the ability to play piano that really were starting to cause me a lot of grief. And is being part of the support group was just so helpful to recognize, yes, there are other people who are dealing with this as a lifelong battle. And I asked my surgeon to save the disc for me. Like, would you please, when you get this out of my spine, I've been listening to it for two years. When you get it out, could I please have it? And they honored that request and it comes in two pieces and they're very small. And I had those two pieces of titanium made into a pair of earrings that I wear quite regularly now. They're special. There is just really a symbol of of faith and strength for me that we got through that. Uh, I was able to advocate for myself and uh, I was able to survive another spine surgery and go on to, to be better. My husband likes to tell me that my earrings are the most expensive jewelry he's ever bought me. I always find it very humbling to listen to the huge life impact that DCM and surgery for DCM can bring about you. Yeah, and you can see why people would desperately want that one-time surgery to fix things once and for all, avoiding re-operations later in life. Could you speculate on why Megan's outcome was disappointingly so much worse than her cousin's? Not really. I mean, it's tricky, I think, especially without knowing the details of the implant involved or the you know specific circumstances. However, I think a theme that comes across from both Megan and Michael's interview is that challenge following a disc replacement and identifying there is a recurrent problem. You know, there's clearly an issue here around what imaging uh, can offer once you've had a disc replacement. And perhaps that is an important factor that people need to think about. Yeah. And we've also heard about the importance of post-surgical physical therapy and the huge difference this can make to recovery. It's another one of the questions that reflected in our top 10 research priorities at FreeCode. It's interesting, Ewan, that you mentioned those top research priorities because I sort of reflect back on, on building that process. And I do remember very specifically that adjacent segment disease was a, a question really championed by, by people living with the condition. I think surgeons can forget the implications of offering further surgery. You know, as you say, you know, people want a one-off operation and trying to avoid that second third operation is, is is really something that needs to be considered at that moment in time and and certainly this is a topic that resonates with our myelopathy.org ambassador spine surgeon rory murphy from phoenix arizona in the united states he's had some excellent results from artificial disc replacements so i asked him to share his perspective everyone 
has different experiences with cervical disc replacement and everyone has different indications. In Europe, there was definitely more cervical disc replacements done in the early 2000s, and then it has started to reduce the number. Whereas in the US, actually, cervical disc replacements are actually increasing a number over the past number of years. The Some of the newer cervical disc replacement systems are better machined. They're simpler to use and easier to use, and that may be helping the adoption at the moment, as well as better uh, education and more awareness of neck challenges and problems. For me, cervical disc replacements have always been part of my decision-making process for at least about 15 to 20 years. The initial results from Europe and Asia were very promising, but exactly who may benefit the most wasn't entirely clear. There was some concern about heterotopic ossification of the discs. Basically, within the moving part of the disc, calcium or bone products developing and reducing the effectiveness of a disc replacement. But with time, I think we've just, we've figured out better who may benefit best from them, and we've got better techniques. And for me personally, it was actually a I operate and look after people close to a major race course here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I had a 55-year-old jockey, approximately, who had a cervical disc replacement 10 years beforehand. So he had it in the early 2000s. And he had a cervical disc replacement, competitively rode as a jockey for 10 years. And unfortunately, he fell off a horse and had a fracture in another part of his spine. And looking at his images over the six months to a year that I looked after him afterwards, seeing how the cervical disc replacement kept movement, he didn't have obvious disease above the cervical disc replacement that would generally happen after an ACDF. It really made me more interested in using cervical disc replacements in people who are good candidates for it because of the ability for it to stand up to heavy activity, a professional jockey riding every day. And I didn't see the adjacent level disease that I've come to expect or the wear and tear above a fusion that I usually see. So though seeing that jockey and uh, trying to help him as with his cervical fracture really made me think more about cervical disc replacements and look to use it more to help the people that I see in clinic. And, and you mentioned this, the sort of indications. How does it, how does it now then fit into your decision-making process? Who do you offer a cervical disc replacement to? Well, I think the ideal uh, person who can benefit from a cervical disc replacement is a, I will say younger person, because we do have people in their 70s who can benefit too, but generally it is a younger person and the per the classic situation is somebody with a large soft disc herniation at one level and the rest of their cervical spine has no major challenges or disease i believe and they have a wide open canal at the levels above and below that that disc herniation that is the perfect candidate i believe and in that situation I think an arthroplasty can be very useful, especially for people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, because they, if we do a fusion, they most likely will develop the disc above breaking down in 
10 to 15 to 20 years time. So Roy, you mentioned there that 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 jockey and that that sort of physical activity being being part of your your process. Do you think there's a differing implications for a sports person, for example, who has a disc replacement versus, say, a fusion in terms of going back to to competitive sport? Generally, I'm considering a arthroplasty in younger people who are still very active and do want to go back to. Uh, contact sports often or mountain biking horseback riding and uh, very vigorous sports generally my recommendation is is to that you can go back to after a cervical disc uh, acdf you can go back to full sports after contact sports including football rugby boxing after approximately six months when the bones are fused together with an arthroplasty i'm recommending about the same there's no exact evidence on what to do but uh, in the united states there was a famous example of jack eichel um, a, a hockey player in the national hockey league who really wanted to get a arthroplasty over a fusion and after a lot of debate um, he did get an arthroplasty and has returned to hockey i've had patients with motorcycle stunt bike riders and jockeys go back to full activities approximately six months after an arthroplasty that's definitely something that needs to be defined better but i will say after either a acdf or an arthroplasty you can go back to you know strenuous activity sports and get back to doing all the things you love to do and that's very important for people cost is important here isn't it because these devices are expensive uh, potentially increasingly so particularly when you compare them to for example an ACDF, you know, what is your view on the cost effectiveness, I guess, and and, and how that perhaps fits into some of the decision-making, particularly for, for the type of patients that come and see you? Implant costs uh, for a ACDF in the United States, a ACDF plate can vary between $500 and $1,500 um, with the screws. And then if you place a titanium cage or spacer, that can be approximately $1,000 to two, sometimes slightly more. So looking at the implant costs, you're looking at somewhere between 1500 and 2500 A arthroplasty uh, implant varies in cost, but can be between 2000 and 4000 Here, the cost is basically about 1000 to $2,000 difference. If that postpones a further surgery by a number of years or gives a better outcome, I think it is well worth that um, difference in cost. Now, it really depends on the economics of the different healthcare systems. And what's your perspective of patients coming to the clinic? Is this something that they're aware of coming in to have conversations? This is something they're asking for? Or, or this is something that's still quite, I guess, new technology you're having to bring into the conversation? Honestly, most people, the biggest problem is getting a diagnosis. Getting a diagnosis and then figuring out where to go, how, how to get good treatment. That's the, the toughest part. Generally, I always recommend, if it was my family member, if you're considering surgery, get two or three opinions from two or three different spine surgeons, if you can. A, to help you understand the different surgical options because surgeons will explain things in slightly different ways and the differences in how they explain them can often be quite helpful in understanding 
the different techniques and the, maybe even the same technique and how it's done. It can be very reassuring if all three surgeons or two surgeons say very similar things. What do you think are the sort of unanswered areas or where are there uncertainties which, which need to be resolved with research? We have 10-year data now. And uh, we've definitely refined our technique and our surgical technique. Um, we're very careful, minimal blood loss, waxing the bone edges, reducing the chance of heterotopic bone formation, picking good candidates. So I think the, the outcomes are better. Having the data is very good. There are at least five or six arthroplasty systems available for us to use, and results are similar for all of them. Really, it comes down to whichever one your surgeon has more, has more experience with and is more comfortable with using. They all have small benefits over each other, and you can tailor those benefits to the unique situation a person's in. We have good, excellent 10-year data. The big question will be, what will be the 20-year data, the 30-year data? Um, how will these arthroplasties do um, at 30 and 40 years? Another question is, can we use cervical disc replacements for three levels and four levels? And what will the 10-year, 15-year data be for that? Wow. Rory really speaks highly of this option, doesn't he? Yes, he's a strong proponent, you know, not in everyone, but certainly in the right cases. It would seem like people like Megan, younger, more active, where we're really trying to avoid the need for surgery for as long as possible, if not perhaps ever, they seem to be the sweet spot. But it also really comes across through those discussions that decision-making isn't simple. You know, Megan appeared to be the perfect candidate. Rory speaks with the experience of many success stories in, in situations like Megan. But obviously for Megan, things didn't go perfectly well. Both Rory and Megan stressed how important it is to be your own advocate, educating yourself and seeking that second or third opinion. Sadly, he says the biggest problem in DCM is getting the diagnosis. And we all know that. So recognition of DCM among doctors is still a problem. This is something we hear repeatedly. So we end up having to become experts ourselves. And, you know, that's what we do in the support group, which, of course, can be really difficult. This is where malopathy.org is trying to help by providing clear diagnostic criteria for DCM. Very much so. So although we're a small organisation at the moment, we're continuously trying to provide better resources but also trying to ensure the research targets the questions that need answering. And I think that picks up a theme that's coming across throughout these interviews. There's clearly lots of factors at play here, which we don't fully understand at the moment. You know, how do we select the right patient? DCM is so different from one individual to another. You know, we aren't very good at breaking that down into common patterns. You know, we have certain ideas coming across here, for example, young, single lever disease without other wear and tear in the spine, but it's clearly not a catch-all. And then there's the variation that, that comes with a, a treatment that's complex, like a surgery. You know, who and how the device is inserted, how the body responds to that device are clearly potentially implications to consider. So, yes, I think from what Rory's saying, perhaps longer term follow up data is going to be helpful here. But it also seems that we do need to have new trials with very focused questions, you know, looking at these specific patient groups. Ultimately, this is going to give us the, the information that we need to help have these decision making processes. Totally agree. What do you think, Ben, of Rory's perspective that in Europe, cervical disc replacement was in decline? 
whilst it was on the rise in the US? It's a great question. You know, I've never seen a displacement myself. We don't actually offer them in, in Cambridge um, and they're increasingly rare in, in the United Kingdom. And, and there are going to be many factors feeding into this, but it's hard to get away from one important one, cost. The UK runs a largely publicly funded healthcare system where cost is a major part of healthcare policy. So lastly, let's hear from someone who is taking a very scientific approach to the concept of costs for just these reasons, evaluating ACDF versus displacement. Valerie Sherman is a PhD student and neurosurgical resident at Maastricht University Medical Centre in the Netherlands. She's devised a randomised controlled trial called the CASES trial, which stands for Cervical Arthroplasty Cost Effectiveness Study. I started by asking her how she became interested in this question. After I um, finished my studies and I started working in a neurosurgical department, I quickly became involved with the spine research team there. And uh, around that time, there was a company who actually um, had a slogan that said uh, cervical disc arthroplasty, restoring physiological motion. And this really sparked the interest of a research group because um, we actually don't know what is normal anatomy or what is normal motion and how can you claim to restore it with a disc arthroplasty. So that, that was how we got interested uh, and we started looking at what we do know and what we don't know as it's a very controversial topic. And uh, we became, uh, the more we became interested, the more we see that a lot of questions remain. And therefore we started, uh, started this research line in looking at cervical disc arthroplasty, comparing it to other techniques. Of course, what we know, the main goal of a uh, uh, disc arthroplasty is to uh, preserve motion. And the theory is that this might prevent um, the development of adjacent segment disease in comparison to fusion. We notice in a lot of studies that there's a difference in, first of all, um, outcome measures, but also in the definitions that are used for adjacent segment pathology. So they're looking, for example, at radiological um, degeneration or at uh, clinical symptoms or at reoperations. And because of these differences in the literature, it still remains pretty hard to compare the results. Therefore, we already think there's still a lot of answers missing. As it stood before your study started, what was the sort of perspective of your your team in in Maastricht in terms of who they offered this replacement to or or didn't? In the Netherlands, disc arthroplasty is not reimbursed. So actually, we cannot offer it to our patients. So we always standard uh, do fusion or ACDF. But we do not use arthroplasty yet. And this is also part of why we're interested to see which benefit patients will benefit and uh, who we might offer uh, disc arthroplasty. That's interesting. And why is that being reached? Presumably they, there's some sort of lack of, a lack of evidence that's, that's, that led to that position. The general opinion is that short-term results especially, they appear to be similar between the two techniques. But arthroplasty is a lot more expensive. So what we did um, with this background information, we started the CASES trial, which is the cervical arthroplasty cost-effectiveness study. The theory of the cervical arthroplasty cost-effectiveness study that we want to investigate if the, if the use of an ar- cervical disc cortisis is more cost-effective on the long term, because we do think that if you invest more in a more expensive implant, so prosthesis that you might gain these costs back on the long term if you can prevent 
new complaints and new uh, operations for patients. So what is the actual design of the study? What, what, what are you actually looking at? We include or the design of the study is an RCT in which patients um, are randomized one by one uh, for uh, ACDF or cervical disc arthroplasty. The patients themselves are blinded for the first year and it's a 50-50 chance uh, on fusion and on arthroplasty. We include all uh, kinds of patients, uh, meaning single level and multi-level, also um, radiculopathy or myelopathy complaints. And the pathology needs to be degenerative, so we exclude any other causes of compressions like trauma or infection. Um, And we exclude patients that have had surgery or radiotherapy in the cervical spine before. So we can only include patients that have a first-time anterior intervention. We aim to include 198 patients, so 99 in each group. And we will follow all the patients for four years, in which every half year they will fill out questionnaires uh, concerning their health, but also about their, for example, return to work. And then if we do this every six months to four years later, we hope to be able to catch most of the newly developed adjacent segment disease complaints. So we are measuring very broad socioeconomic costs, loss of productivity, not being able to work. But we also uh, include informal caregivers in the study to also be able to measure how much work they miss, for example, to accompany someone to the hospital or because a patient cannot go to work or cannot be at home alone. So there's a lot of associated costs around it. That's really fascinating because I think that is a really big unmet need, that sort of wider impact of the of the condition how are you going to measure that there's several standardized questionnaires to measure uh, these costs with loss of productivity costs or informal caregivers and we use these in our study so when you look at cost effectiveness you include of course both cost and effectiveness but some some studies only look at procedural costs some only look at implant costs but some also include physiotherapy visits or medication So there's already a very big difference in only the cost aspect, but also in the effectivity measurements. Some studies look at uh, quality of life, but others look at the neck disability index. Others look at reoperation rates. And so I came to the conclusion, actually, we really don't know because we cannot compare these studies. So we've called it that there is anarchy in the uh, current economic evaluations because there's a lack of a governing body just to follow these rules. And therefore, we decided to develop a set of disease-specific guidelines for the conduct of economic evaluations in spine surgery specifically. And the main aim is to create more uniformity so that we can also compare results in the end. That's a very, very um, important goal. And just to clarify then, the ambition is that you're going to standardize the types of costs being measured as well as how they're being measured and reported? If one study looks at the neck disability index and includes only implant costs, it will be very hard to compare this with a study that looks at all broad socioeconomic costs and quality of life, for example. So the main aim is to provide guidance in the conduct and also in reporting so that we can compare the studies. One of the main points that stands out to me from Valerie's interview is the different studies focus on different outcome measurements. 
This is exactly the frustration that led to the development of the standardized RICO DCM toolkit. So that going forward, all studies will measure the same outcomes, making them comparable. Yes, I sympathise with Valerie when she describes this anarchy in the current economic evaluations for cost effectiveness. And, you know, like us, she's created a specific toolkit to try and help solve this problem going forward, which frankly is going to be really important because all healthcare systems are grappling with the rapidly increasing cost of healthcare. And for spine surgery, where so much new technology is becoming proposed, determining cost effectiveness is going to be crucial, I think, for implementation. And so for Disreplacement, it's going to be fascinating to see the results of her trial, the CASES trial. And we'll certainly be watching that space with, with great interest, particularly in countries where access to disreplacement is limited. So I guess it's the bottom line that for a treatment to be widely offered as an option, we need proof that it's cost effective in the long term. I think that's right. And I think it's particularly for this situation where the short term outcomes seem to be difficult to comprehensively say one is better than the other so you know from Rory's interview we do hear that if there's going to be gains significant gains it, it's probably going to be in the long term for, for disreplacement and, and then we need that evidence to help help healthcare policy have an impact. So Ben what conclusion can we draw from a guest today? Well we've clearly heard that cervical disreplacement has a role in treating DCM. At the moment the sweet spot seems to be in people who are younger with very isolated, perhaps just one level, degenerative changes of the spine, where preserving motion is felt not to aggravate the condition and instead perhaps have a role in preventing adjacent segment disease. However, clearly these criteria are not absolute. There is a need to carefully judge the individual situation. Fulfilling those criteria does not guarantee success. And the challenges around being able to undergo MRI are notable not just for the follow-up of myelopathy, but just consider that MRI is an important diagnostic test for many other health problems that could arise in the future. And for that reason, it's important that people with DCM are empowered to be their own advocate, to educate themselves, learn about the options available to them, ask the questions, press for a second or third opinion if necessary. It's also clear to me that I think we need more research in this area. My sense is that around the world, we have made our professional interpretations on quite noisy data. Noisy in that there was an element of interpretation and people have gone one way or uh, the other. And what this means is that we need to build on those concepts. For example, patient selection is, seems to be critical here, but do we know how to do this? Do we have the best tools, imaging or otherwise to do this? And then what is the long-term effectiveness in those ideal patients? Does that make a difference to the cost effectiveness of these treatments? I think myelopathy.org can have an important role in all of these challenges, providing the education support for those having to make the decision about their treatment, but also as a hub to bring together researchers to collaborate on these initiatives and to ensure trials fill ongoing knowledge gaps. So if you're a researcher listening to this podcast, do join us by going to the website www.myelopathy.org and signing up to the community where we're working together to accelerate progress. Yes, and if you're a person living with DCM, you can also sign up to stay up to date with our work and even participate in our research. And if you need more information about any of the topics discussed here, you'll find some information on the website, plenty of experts in the support group, but also do feel free to, to reach out by email. Yes, pop in. I'll be waiting to meet you and share experiences. Thank you for listening. So a big thanks to those who helped put this episode together, all of our guests, of course. The episode was aggregated by Elizabeth Roberts, produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV, 
and next month we're turning our attention to one of those from the support group who's tackling awareness for myelopathy in his own very special way. So do stay tuned for that. Remember, you can keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy by subscribing on your favorite podcast app to this podcast. Of course, you can follow lots more updates through the blog content on myelopathy.org or through its various social media channels. As you've heard, if you'd like to get involved with our efforts to raise awareness, to fundraise, to target research, all you need to do is visit the website, sign up, but do always get in touch at recode myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.